Hey, good people. February is Black History Month, and I'm celebrating it by hosting a special event that I want to share with all of you. On Wednesday, February 17th, join me at 7 p.m. Eastern Time for Unblocking Our Blessing, a 75-minute virtual event on how we cultivate the sexiness we need to thrive on this planet in the months and years ahead. During this brief yet powerful and interactive webinar, I'll share my insight on what sexiness really is and why it's nothing to fear. I'll also provide you with concrete strategies for how to get that good kind of energy successfully flowing in all areas of your life. Towards the end of the session, I'll also provide you with info on how you can tap into my upcoming BSE Sex Ed Intensive set to begin later on this spring. Tickets for Unblocking Our Blessing are $20 and can be found under the Events tab on the TSOB website. This event is open to everyone. However, in particular, no person of African descent will be turned away for inability to pay. There will also be closed captioning and a recording will be provided for those who cannot attend live. For more info or specific questions, shoot us an email at mailbox at tsobpodcast.com. Now, Let's start the show. Welcome to TSOB with Dr. G, a podcast featuring intellectual table talk about race and sexuality. I'm your host, Dr. Tracy Q. Gilbert, a sexuality educator, writer, and researcher. Join me as I talk with the most brilliant minds in human sexuality, applying a professional Black lens to discussions about sexiness, health, and healing in the new millennium. It's TSOB, the sex ed of Black folk. Let's get to the get down, shall we? Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of TSOB with Dr. G. I'm Dr. Tracy Q. Gilbert, and I am over the moon excited to be with you for another episode. I have the pleasure of having one of my, uh, again, like you, I say this with all the episodes, but it's true, like one of my most favorite people on the planet to have this conversation with me today. Um, I am super excited because she brings in a variety of different avenues in this conversation, specifically sex ed through the lens of public health and also being uh, a person at an HBCU, an alum of an HBCU, a historically black college. Um, so I'm very excited to introduce you all and reintroduce you all to, for those who know her already, to the Southern sexologist, AKA Tanya M. Bass. Tanya M. Bass is a national award-winning sexuality educator and a subject matter expert in the areas of health equity and sexual health. She is an alumna of North Carolina Central University's Department of Public Health Education, where she has served as an adjunct instructor for the past 10 years. Currently, Tanya is the lead instructor for human sexuality. Tanya is a highly requested trainer, facilitator, and mentor. Much of her work has been in collaboration with community-based organizations, churches, academic institutions, and state and national conferences. 
She is a past co-chair for the 2014 National Sex Ed Conference and the 2020 American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists Conference. She also has her own conference, the NC Sex Ed Con, which uh, hopefully she'll talk a little bit about while we're talking today. Tanya is also a current member of the editorial board for the American Journal of Sexuality Education. Uh, but let me stop talking and go ahead and welcome Tanya Bass to the floor. Hi, Tanya. Hey, girl. Hi, Dr. Tracy, Dr. G. How are you? I am great. I'm hanging in there as best we can during these times. Listen, and the reality is that it is going to be what it is. And, you know, Black Femmes aren't uh, immune to hard times. And so we rolling, mm -hmm. we, we striving. And you are giving us glory. I'm loving this uh, crown you're giving us, this <laughs> head wrap you're giving us the folks uh, if we I have to admit I haven't yet gotten the video together on YouTube but I will just say on YouTube if the video is up you see this if not you just see my hear my voice <laughs> but uh, for the folks listening you don't get to witness this glory but you can go to YouTube and subscribe and you can view the glory um, anywho, <laughs> um, thank you so much, Tanya, for joining me. I'm not going to waste too much more time. I just really want to jump right in because I know you have a lot of amazing things that, to say that the people love to hear. Uh, tell me, let's go ahead and start off with the question I ask all of my interviewees. Where you're from? Where are your people from? And what's got you thinking about sex ed or sex these days? Yeah, so I have to first acknowledge my people are from Eastern North Carolina, Beaufort County, the city of Pantigo. Um, that's where my family origins start. But I am from Brooklyn, New York. So um, my mother, uh, I don't use the word migrated, but I guess transitioned to Brooklyn, New York at age, I think, 13 or 14, and then has lived there and still lives in the exact same apartment that I grew up in, was born in um, all these years ago but I actually did the reverse of what she did when I was 13 and I moved to North Carolina with my grandmother um, and I want to be clear because there's always a narrative and I don't want nobody to put a story on mine that I my mother let me make that choice based on my decision to um, I liked the South like I didn't know it was North Carolina my mother could certainly take care of me and was able to she didn't even think I was gonna stay but it wasn't because she couldn't care for me. She just was a person who I think now more than ever allowed me to make my own decision. So mm -hmm. I'm from Bed-Stuy, but <laughs> by way of Pantigo, North Bed Carolina. Stuy. Boogie, wait, as a Midwesterner, I'm not gonna pretend like I know any of the lingo in New York. I was about to say Boogie Down, but then I was like, wait, that's Bronx, Never mind. Uh oh, that's Bronx. Never mind. I'm a Brooklyn queen, I'm a Brooklyn queen. <laughs> <laughs> so so you you what you came down to North Carolina and you've been there ever since ever since like we used to come every summer and I just love running around playing with my cousins and so when my grandmother said you know I'm retiring I've raised my kids I'm not taking anybody with me I was like I'm going <laughs> sassy you know I'm going and she was like no you're not so it was the summer when she moved and I was like I'm staying and I stayed. And then when I hit puberty, I was kind of like, well, I don't need to get out of here. But <laughs> it was too late. <laughs> but I'm here now. <laughs> yeah, there was like, it's a good idea that you're there, actually. Yeah. So, yeah, it worked out. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love that. And I think migration is probably the the term, right? Thinking of the great migration and, and just the different yeah. patterns that um, black folks have taken over our course of history. Um, I think, too what you said the reverse is kind of the bigger trend now of like black folks who grew up in the north who've moved back down to the south and are trying to make their way in different areas and i know north carolina is a big 
big hub of folks doing that. Um, we're not going to get into Absolutely. that, but I'm just thinking about that in the moment. <laughs> um, so great, great, great. So tell me, okay, you, you we got to Beaufort County, right? Beaufort. Beaufort. Yes, Beaufort, Beaufort. Let me clarify. Beaufort County. How'd you get from there into sex ed? Wow. So from Beaufort County, like I just think about my life experience for sure being raised there. Like I literally, if you've ever seen people walk to church or you see a group of black folks walking to church, like that was us. Because my home with my grandmother, where she lived, where we, we lived, like our church was right across the street. So like we could go and play on the church property at any point, you know, just randomly doing stuff. So I think about my upbringing and some of the lessons I did get and some of the ones I didn't get. And it's a rural town. And so when I went to North Carolina Central University, I had my heart set on being a nurse. And the way the curriculum was structured and the way I took, I was advised and took my classes, it would have been that I had one class to keep me from applying for the upper division of nursing. And that would have required me to either find additional classes randomly to pay for or move off campus because, you know, you can't take one credit and live on the yard. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, well, this is a crisis. I, and my, I got to graduate. Right. And so I got advised to change my major to public health. And once I started there, you know, it was like in the early 90s. And so HIV was um, being more and more discussed. And by the time I made that decision, I knew that I wanted to do um, some kind of, like I wanted to be the STD police because that's what we called it. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to go out and now I know the proper name is disease intervention specialist, mm -hmm. which is so common now because people are talking about contact tracing. But yeah, I knew I wanted to do that. And so I kind of found my way by changing my major wow. to public health. Wow, 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 wow. Mm -hmm. That's so funny because... I guess maybe and maybe you can speak to this too. It, it feels so resonant to me. Like I, I'm very adamant, and we'll get into in a minute why I'm very adamant about not coming through to sex ed from public health. But it's all what mm -hmm. what I'm resonant. What's resonating for me about your story is the whole idea of you just kind of stumbled into it, right? It wasn't something that you just decided when you were like 13, 14, 15, I'm going to be a sex educator. Like I didn't even know that was a thing that people, like right. a formal profession that people did until maybe I was 20. Like I, I think it was, I was in my early twenties and I was working mm -hmm. with a youth group and we had the, um, we invited Planned Parenthood to come in and present. And it was like, this is a thing. Like, and right. I'm looking at this person, this is no shade to Planned Parenthood, but I was like, and hey, you doing it like this, I could have been did this. <laughs> <laughs> right? So it's just interesting to me. And I wonder, sometimes I'm curious about how that is affected by race and how many black folks are like, yeah, I never would have thought I would be in sex ed, but here I am and I'm loving the work. Yeah, well, I think for me and I, because that was my experience and I realized that what I just shared, like, even the process of NCCU, you know, bless them, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's my university. That's my alma mater. That's where I work right now. But the nursing department has produced a lot of public health majors mm -hmm. for various reasons. We'll leave it at that. Mm -hmm. And the benefit, although I think about, I know we have work to do in our department, and that's where I come in now. But 
that definitely was the transition where people changed their major from nursing for whatever reason. And then when they got to public health, whether it was myself, whether it was my colleague who, do, you know, who's retired, Dr. David Jolly, um, Dr. Laverne Reed, a couple of other folks who either connected them with folks who were working in the profession or whatever, that they, that's how their interest in working in sexuality happened. So it wasn't the worst thing in a sense, but we know that prevention kind of gives you kind of like all the ugly dark parts mm -hmm. I feel like of sexuality and doesn't highlight the positive yeah. um, aspects and I know that's my experience and so now I try not to make it the experience of others oh and, yeah and help them dig into like why do you want to do this because maybe you don't exactly want to do sex ed maybe you want to do perinatal um, education or you know something around maternal and child health although it's sexuality related it's not specifically sex. you know honing in sex yeah, yeah 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 no that makes sense and you know what you brought up some things that i think we're going to get into in a minute but I, i'd like to uplift the fact that you are doing this work at currently now at an hbcu and that there was such a strong emphasis on this class and human sexuality and helping folks in public health understand uh human sexuality particularly I don't, I don't know, and maybe you can speak to this too, but I think about my experiences as an alum of an HBCU, go big blue, Tennessee State University, you know, class <laughs> of 2000. Um, and this whole, the the culture of, of HBCUs are such that my experience has been that sexuality is just not something that people just feel free to talk about, to teach on, to have different conversations. I mean, I did have a health class and I think that was the first time I learned about like I, that was the first time I even learned about orgasms, but it was heavily, here's an STI, here's how it will kill you. And this is what you need to protect yourself from. So to hear to that there's a whole class in the HBCU that really goes more in depth into the, the normative lived experience of sexuality, I'm super excited about. Can you talk a little yeah. bit more about what that's been like at, at uh, North Carolina Central? Ooh, I feel like I'm getting teary-eyed just thinking about it because I want to turn, like, I don't know how much you can see, Tracy, of my background, but, like, do you see the word, can you see the word sex education or sexuality education? I think it's blinded by your window, but but I'm going to, oh, right there, I see it, yes, with the white right, and the black. Right here, so, and there's this woman here. Mm -hmm. This is Miss Mildred Page. Miss Mildred Page taught sexuality education at NCCU, I don't know how many years. Like, I'll at least say... I want to say 50. I don't know. She retired. I believe she was 82 when she retired. And the reason why we're hugging right there is she was giving me her class, wow. the blessing to teach her class. Wow. So there were, um, she was the main sexuality teacher there. Um, and then a couple of other folks taught it as well. But um, that was like the class that people wanted to take. Like they loved Miss Page. They loved her approach, you know. I used to agree when people were like, oh, she was like the black um, Dr. Ruth. No, she's more of the June Butts. Now that I know who Dr. Ruth yes, right? is, that's, that's the Dr. June Butts of NC. Yes. And can CU. you, for the, for the folks who don't know, who are like, who the hell is June Butts? Can you clarify? <laughs> Who that is? Yeah, June Butts is one of the first pioneers, um, black women in sexuality education. I know much love to Dr. Jocelyn Elders, but there was also June Butts who actually taught at HBCUs, who worked with the CDC, who actually had a column in Essence Magazine. Mm -hmm. So she was all about black sexuality. Uh, we just hadn't heard about her um, during our time. And so I praise uh, Dr. Butts now because I'm like, I know her, you know, yes. like I feel like I know the spirit of her. She recently passed away, but yeah, um, pretty dope. And so 
Dr. Um, well, Miss Page was that mainstay in the health ed department. And then as we started growing, like I was talking about HIV AIDS, um, one of my colleagues started working with creating a peer education program and reached out. And so we jointly worked on that. Like he started it and um, we helped, you know, build the program where we were training our students on learning about sexuality. Although it was focused on prevention, we still had those deep conversations and even conversations because, you know, being a peer educator doesn't mean that you're not having sex. Doesn't mean you always wear a condom. Listen. You know, like, Listen. you're just trying to transfer the information and letting them know that, you know, there's a level of responsibility that you have, but we also know that you're human. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, bridging all of that together. So I would say, even with its challenges, NCCU has been a at the forefront of a lot of sexuality education in North Carolina. But it doesn't mean we're also the best at what we're doing either. Yeah. Um, we still have the challenges of an HBCU. We are one of five HBCUs. I think a sixth one just joined at the other school in North Carolina, <laughs> North Carolina A&T. Um, but to have um, an LGBT center. Yes. And yeah. so, you know, we're. I think we're doing the work as best we can, but I know that we're fighting against a lot of respectability politics, a lot of old history, a lot of different um, worldviews, you know, colliding, and we're trying to expand them so that our students feel safe, love, and supported. Yeah, that's awesome. That And that's so important because I think about not only the level of ignorance, but the level of... Um, just downright harm that was caused, yes. that I think gets caused through silence, through acting as if things aren't the way they are, um, or being downright antagonizing, particularly to LGBTQ students. Like I remember- yeah, Absolutely. Just the outright, and of course, you know, a lot of this, and this is not to shame at all, but a lot of this is connected to religion and being in the Bible belt and kind of this idea. Like I was telling you, I was like, sex ed for us was soul ties. Like it was this health class about STIs and it was soul ties. <laughs> and, you know, I think that was easy for some of us, but for those who, for whom that wasn't a frame of reference or that wasn't something that was resonant enough to really be ingrained, that was a challenge to be able to navigate. Okay, so what does it have to do with the actual sex that I am having right now? Like, yes. Okay. And it's so, it's so troubling because it wasn't until a few of the, my students became my colleagues, you know, mm -hmm. we've had conversations about some of the harm, some of the homophobia, the transphobia that, you know, we always, well, I always felt like, you know, if there's going to be a safe place at NCCU, it's going to be in the Department of Public Health Education. Yeah. But maybe two or three years ago, I had a conversation with two queer and trans students at um, that I, you know, I, I consider colleagues now. And when they shared with me the fear, the stigma, the intimidation, and the harm, and even the assumptions, I'm gonna, I'm using the word assumptions because I feel like people presume things or assume things about their students based on what they think they see and oh, they absolutely. know. And then they say things that are harmful. Mm -hmm. And so hearing that, it broke my heart knowing that my colleagues could be this way to students when I'm thinking, you know, we're we're all on the same page right. about being inclusive, being um, supportive, and making our our classroom safe. Right. 
So we weren't a safe haven for our students. Right. And and to be clear, this sexuality thing is something we all need to work out. Like, let's not act like just because you don't have a label that you ain't got some queerness that you need to reconcile in yourself and a few other things. Right. Right. <laughs> so uh, I like thank you. I'll say as a former HBCU student, thank you for doing that hard work, that good work. <laughs> Um, so let's shift a little bit and talk about the public health more broadly, more generally thinking about that. Um, so one of the things I've not said, but I'll just share now, is that um, public health has a big place in the sex ed trajectory of Black folks in terms of our history, in terms of how we're even exposed to sex ed. And a lot of it has to do with... Um, with, with prevention, like you were saying, and I, I big up Linwood Lewis, who once I read his article, I'm, sh I'm not even sure what else he's done, but when I read his article of, uh, <laughs> about preventive versus eudaimonic lenses and how that affects sex ed, I was like, bingo, eureka. And so to break that down for folks, um, it's this idea of how we teach sex ed, whether or not we're teaching it from this framework where sexuality is a normative lived experience, where everybody's mm -hmm. experiencing it. And so our goal is to help people uh, experience wellness in their sexual expression, in their relationships, healthy relationships, and all those things, or whether or not we, we teach through the preventive lens, which is all about sex is bad, it will kill you, protect yourself or die, right? Mm -hmm. And far too often, black folks have received that, that negative yes. lens, that preventive lens. And unfortunately, public health has had a big role to do in that, to do with that, such that now there's this awesome phrase that I hope you get into where, uh, that you'll discuss that where we're acknowledging that racism is a public health issue, right? And so can you share a little bit about, I mean, you could talk historically if you want to, you can talk present day, just a little bit about how race has informed the public health discussion about sex ed and what's the work that educators like yourself are do what's the work that you're doing to push back against that that narrative yeah i think race and racism um, are definitely you know um, guiding the thoughts and the conversations around public health and in particular sexuality and sex ed when i think about um you know i've been reading uh, killing the black body mm -hmm. and you know hearing about black and, and oftentimes i don't say sexuality field i'll try to say the profession because field tr you know triggers me in a way mm. and i'm using the word loosely trigger but it just makes me think deeper about what that looks like so one knowing that during the time when you know margaret sanger had the negro project mm -hmm. they were utilizing what I consider community-based sexuality educators, black folks that they could educate and teach to go talk to other black folks, which in essence, in theory, in and of itself, is not harmful. Mm -hmm. However, and and though, mm -hmm. <laughs> we know what that, that looked like for the Negro Project around eugenics and et cetera. And even using the black church, like people think it's so novel, like, oh, we should use the black church as such a pillar in a way, like they were doing it then. Mm -hmm. You know, W.E.B. Du Bois was one of the ones who sign on to this project coming to the South. Mm -hmm. um, so I think about how race played a part in that and like how we can, act, we've actually, what we've been taught 
and what we think about ourselves. And then if I move it fast forward, I think about the ways in which, so I do a lot of work now too with maternal and child health and the story with Serena Williams and being Mm, in the hospital mm -hmm. and not being taken seriously or that mindset of bias where black women can take more pain or, you know, something like that. If she hadn't advocated for herself and she didn't have to holler in a sense, even being Serena Williams, that no, this is a problem. I need to get this CAT scan done. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, she probably could have died yeah. after giving birth. And we look at what's happening with um, maternal mortality for black folks or black women already. And it's just amazing to me. So I think that we not only get those hypersexive um, sexual messages of like, you know, you're having so much sex and if you do this, whatever from that prevention. I don't think we we talk about pleasure enough. I know I was trained and I'm going to own it because I've been delivered from the whole, <laughs> Amen. you know, just put just put a condom on and use a little bit. feels the same. Amen. Like I was literally lying to people and didn't own that I was lying. Didn't realize and sometimes Come that I was this. lying. Yes. And I was like, I am lying because I know for myself Put it on a condom, and you can put on as much lube as you want. It's still not going to feel. It's not going to feel the same. Like, it doesn't. Not using a condom. <laughs> so, but what I realized what we needed to do was like, we never talked about the types of condoms. And even when I started out, mm-hmm. we only had primarily the two, which was lambskin and, um, you know, latex. But now we have polyisoprene, polyurethane. And so the conversations need to go deeper than put some lube on. Oh, absolutely. And it's almost dismissive. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't need to enjoy it. Just... Mm-hmm. Put some lube on. Make sure you use it. And and that that was the I, I was very robotic in even my prevention because I literally regurgitated the messages that I was hearing from the CDC or from public health leaders and and telling my folks that and not really getting to know like there's a reason why you're not using condoms. There's a reason why you can't have a conversation with your partner about having syphilis. So I think the way our blackness shows up in that is that it's just, well, if you're going to have sex, you better have it this way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't really care if you like it. Just don't be spreading disease. Yeah. That's what it felt like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's so important because what you said, that, and I think this is a contemporary conversation when we talk about racial justice and sex ed spaces, so many people think it's just about putting black and brown faces in the, at the table. And it's like, if mm-hmm. the black and brown faces are continually perpetuating white supremacist ideals or anti-black ideals about how sex goes, then it doesn't yeah. matter what the color of their skin is. It's not just about uh, the access to resources and access to job opportunities. It's like, okay, yeah, this person is the head of the public health department, but if they have a attitude that's like, oh, these, these niggas gonna be out here doing whatever and it's my job to stop that. Like they're not helpful. It's not helpful. And, and so I, I'm glad you raised that point because, um, Another one, at some point I'm going to get him on this show, another one of your public health colleagues, Javante Williams, we often get into these back and forths because I'm like, you know what, forget public health. That's why the problem is we got now because y'all out here perpetuating and he has to be like, Tracy, it's not all of us. We, we get it. But it's like, but I think it's important that those who come through public health in particular have those critical conversations about where's the balance between preventing adverse outcomes that we don't want people to experience but in the end stopping people from living their authentic sexual lives because i think the balance has to be struck especially for black folks who who haven't as a collective been given that opportunity 
No, I think you're absolutely right because when I do think about, even when I think about spaces that I've gone in on, so, you know, going to the American Public Health Association Conference or the American College Health, like, the ideas around sex are, like, so different than when you go to an actual sexuality conference mm-hmm. and looking around. You're like, well, where are y'all been? Mm-hmm. That's how I felt when I first went to one. And I was like, okay. But then I was like, so why aren't my colleagues from health here you know like why aren't we married together and then when i started inviting people or telling them about they were like wait what so it it, it's almost like you are siloed intentionally and no one's crossing over and right now like uh, maybe two years ago there was just an article coming out about prevention being more sex positive well hallelujah like finally (laughs) you know like we've been trying to tell y'all this for years and then when I think about administratively, because I wanted to come back to the field workers term, mm-hmm. administratively, how race shows up there or racialization is that although I think it's important that people working in the community look like the community, I think it's very interesting, certain organizations and in, even in my state experience, the people who were considered field workers were the disease intervention specialists who were going mm. out in the community. They literally called us the field office. Mm-hmm. And while that had been going on for years, no one thought about the connotation until I started talking about it. And I still don't know. I, I want to say they changed it. I probably need to Google that and go on our page and look to see. But yeah. I, I they might have changed it. But it was called field services. Mm. Literally, field services. Mm-hmm. And while I think they meant the field, of course. I still feel like there was an undertone because most of those people were black and brown. Yeah, and, and most of us, uh, when you look across organizations, right, and, and we're not going to belabor the point too much because I really want to get into, like, but I think for our colleagues who might be listening, it is a critical mm-hmm. conversation to think about that by and large, when you look at the structure of, of organizations that do sex ed, you'll find that the folks at the top who organize the work, who coordinate the work, yep. who determine what the priorities are, they tend to be white. And the folks who are carrying out those orders um, and a lot of it is not it's not um, forced because a lot of us get into this work because we have the passion mm-hmm. of doing direct service because we have the desire to be with people. Um, but it still kind of shakes out that we are carrying out white folks orders with mm-hmm. the black folks and at the and so we're the ones on the ground and so when you said it like I was like I didn't even think about that I may not ever use the term field again because I didn't even think about it until you just broke it down like oh shoot oh shoot <laughs> <laughs> But I try not to because it's so much in our vernacular. But like I'll try to like like profession, profession. Yeah, it just for me. Yeah, no, I, I I get it. I get it. And I'm listen. It ain't nothing for me to change a term. Look. Um, <laughs> but anywho, let's get into let's get into Southern sexologists because we know. Well, I know this is your brand. This is your your energy to the world. Um, I love the term. Uh, tell the folks what you feel like your sex ed superpower is. Hmm. I would think in some ways connection mm. um, is my sex ed superpower. And the reason I say that is so like you hear my story of being from Brooklyn and then living the remaining part of my life all of, since then um, in North Carolina. And it even took me a while to like people, some people who knew, you know, knew me from Brooklyn or know that I'm from there were like, well, you're not Southern. Why do you want to be the Southern sexologist? Or (laughs) Southern, you want to be Southern? Like, Mm. you know, you know what that means? And I was like, you know what? 
I definitely embrace some of the positive aspects of being a Southern person. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, I'm holding on luck if you buck. I'm still Brooklyn. Right. But at the same time, um, I think it's connection because I've had, even at a young age, that lived experience mm-hmm. um, of understanding diversity and understanding, like, people are just people. They're individuals and there's certain things around our culture. You know, it was a culture shock moving here and trying to connect with even in in junior high school who let me tell you if you don't know how to connect and and make your own space Mm -hmm. you could be devoured by all the things and i couldn't imagine doing that you know even now with social media and all of that stuff but yeah i think the ability to go into a space and connect with individuals and understanding that i'm not going to connect with everybody and Mm -hmm. that's cool too but that's my goal is like if you know if nothing else if you don't learn something new from me at least we've connected and on a level so i think that's why i landed with connection and i think that's a that's a good one for you because i think about what what popped in my head was like everybody knows tanya bass like everybody right (laughs) and that that i think that's true um i love what you bring up though about kind of the the north south kind of thing that happens because one of the things that I feel like as black folks that is true at least up into through maybe the zennial older millennial generation is the connection between the north and the south every single one mm-hmm. of us and that's why I asked the question of like where are you from where are your people from because each and every one of us has that story of like well I'm from here but my people are from and I think it's important <laughs> to keep that connection and acknowledge that um, we have roots, especially when we talk about from a mm-hmm. diasporan conversation around, you know, folks, oh, black Americans don't have culture. They don't have, excuse you, we have a whole root. We have right. whole histories. And I think even a lot of black Americans, because for a variety of other reasons that are fall outside this episode's topic, you know, they we want to kind of deny that or we want to kind of poo-poo that or, or we kind of want to disregard that. But it's like, no, those roots matter. Our our country cousins matter. And especially when we look at our culture and the fact that the South is so influential on a general level, it's like, how dare you act like you ain't got no connection? Like, how dare you ain't got no, how you act like you ain't got no roots? Like, right. absolutely. So um, I think that's an awesome, that's an awesome term to think about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so when you think about, sex ed, the ways that you have seen it show up in black and brown, well, black communities, but black and brown, we can throw black and brown in there as well. Um, Mm -hmm. What do you think is there one, if there's any one thing that you feel like when you're with a black audience and you're talking about sex ed, what's one thing that you feel like, you know what, we may need to tighten this up a little bit in terms of how we're understanding these topics, in terms of how we're embracing these topics. What might be one thing that you feel like, you know what, Black folks, we need to do better around this as it relates to sexuality? I feel like, Black folks, we need to do better around, like, I'm just going to say yucking people's yums. Like, not being, I don't even want to say accepting, but just letting people do their thing like we maybe it's judgmental Mm -hmm. like not being judgmental like we will be like ooh, somebody's a freak a hoe they nasty you know Mm -hmm. all of that and it's kind of like can we just let people live if you don't like to do it you don't have to do it like nobody nobody asks you you to do it lick toes or booty holes or anything but if somebody else wants to 
Let's rock on. Rock on. Like, just mind your business. And I think we have so much about like trying. I don't know if we want to control our peers or we just want to judge them or maybe we just need to deal with some stuff in ourselves. Like, I would try it, but you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it just feels like there's, we, we have to do better in like teaching people that there's more to life than missionary style yeah. and that. There's so many things you could try, but you don't have to if you don't want to. Yeah. And if you try it and don't like it, that's okay too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because the thing that I was like, every time I ask a question, I'm like, I always have my own ideas in my own head, but I appreciate you saying that because I think about what you said earlier about respectability politics. And mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. also think about how much the reliance on black people being a monolith is part of that discussion as well, right? Like I think about how many times I've heard a black person say about something, oh, that's white people shit, right? That's not something we do. When it's like, first off, do you know all the black people? Second off, um, how has, you know, how do you know that it's not something that has been a part because because our culture has been so colonized for so long and, you know, completely, you know, that's a whole other deep discussion. How do you know these aren't things that were a part of us that have been stolen or that have been co-opted right. or that have been um, damaged in, in our process of coming to this planet or coming to this through this country, uh, not planet, country. <laughs> um, and then <laughs> finally, how much, like how much of that even matters to who you are as an individual person. Like, is someone coming to look into your bedroom? Is somebody like, do you have to give a report of what you did in your bedroom? Like, why is there this need to uh, self-police or other police based on things that you technically, unless you weren't involved, weren't gonna actually be part of or be privy to. Right. So I, I think about that a lot, uh, particularly within the context of race and this idea of what the ideal black sexual person uh, is doing. I don't know, I we have so much work to do to figure out like, where did this come from? Why is it happening and how do we stop it? But I love that you it, you brought it back to those respectability mm-hmm. politics because it's goes like, uh, so and such would never do that or you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So, and it's like, what, yeah, well, what if they that, did? Like, what if they did? I mean. I think about, I just think about a lot of different things. And I think about how, going back to what you said about pleasure, how much pleasure has been taken from us. And not to say that we don't have it, because I also believe, like I said, uh, I've said at the beginning of this show when I first started it, that Black folks lead the way in terms of articulating what pleasure can look like. Like, I think our culture sets the standard for the possibilities. (laughs) So it's amazing to me how there's this, this both and that exists between like sex positivity. We know how to articulate it. And yet so many of us are like, oh, sucking a dick. I don't know. That's, mm, that's (laughs) only freaks do that. Like really? That's not even the tip of all the thing. Like the tip, no pun intended, but pun intended of all the things (laughs) that (laughs) are part of your sexual possibilities. If you were just open to it and, so, so I, I'll ask you this. Do you ever, with your classes, uh, do some exploration around the affect, around the emotions, and around the hesitations that people have? And, and do you have any like insight into what people, how people process their emotions around sex? And what are some of the things you found in terms of what people say about their hesitation to really go deeper? 
A lot of it is rooted in um, kind of what you're saying um, when we were talking about respectability politics, but more so um, how it shows up generationally. So like the generational Uh conversations. So last semester, it was hard. I'm just going to be honest because I flipped from being super concerned about my students' safety and they were like, because, you know, we, we transitioned due to COVID in the middle of the semester. So I already had that rapport and they were like still eager to learn to now I'm getting a new group of students who like, are eager to learn, but are pandemic fatigued and kind of like, why can't we, you know, be face to face? And I'm thinking, well, your classmate is immune compromised and I'm a little bit scared myself. So I'm just keeping it real. (laughs) But we had a conversation because it was like, okay, let's try to, you know, talk about chapter content and what's going on in the world. And we had a conversation about WAP. Mm. And so when we were talking about, you know, like, how how do you perceive the song? Have you talked to any of your elders, like your aunties or uncles or and in particular, there were this day on the tenants, there were all the um, black femmes. Mm-hmm. So we kind of talked about it from like a generational, like your auntie, your mama, your grandma. And so some people like, oh, my God, my mom heard that and was just like, what is that you're listening to? And then they had a conversation about it. So it's like people taking advantage of of those teachable moments, mm. but the feeling of fear that the mom had that her daughter was having sex mm-hmm. and could be, you know, exposing herself to potential harm, whether it was disease or emotional harm or, you know, some kind of physical harm. Mm-hmm. But also, it was the emotion for this one mom that was, wait, you're not my little baby anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, it was that that song was that moment for that mom to express that you're not my little girl anymore. Like you're a woman just like me. And that's kind of scary too. And I was like, I can't believe y'all are having these conversations. And then another student sharing that, you know, her mom was like, yeah, girl. uh." Like, you know, listening to it. And she's kind of like, wait, mom, mom, no, 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 no. You know, like, I love that. (laughs) Yeah, it was a range of of feelings and thoughts. And so, you know, when we were talking about how they felt about it, you know, some people felt like it made them feel empowered. Emotionally, they were happy about it. Some people felt like, not sad per se, but they thought about other people. And like, if you think about a WAP, does everybody have WAP? You know, does everybody even call it WAP? Like they were thinking about maybe the inclusiveness of it or was it you know causing potential harm Mm -hmm. for other people Mm -hmm. it it was just a really good conversation so yeah we do try to talk about feelings around certain aspects of their sexuality and that just happened to be the conversation that it kind of came up in yeah last semester i love i love this present generation and how they just really go to the wall in terms of like making things intersectional and being like, so listen, let's talk about these WAPs. And what if, like, I love that. And I love you bringing in the generational conversation because I think that is absolutely a a matter of race and and something to think about with with respect to black culture because a lot Mm -hmm. of our hesitations may be that, yeah, we may have grown up, been grown up in like a totally sexually free, you know, cultural experience. I think of growing up at the height of the 90s with like, and and just the 90s and thinking about hip hop and all of the amazing sex positivity that was in hip hop and still having that idea of like but my mama gonna know and my grandma gonna (laughs) you know and I don't want to be judged and having to navigate those two and so I think I I think acknowledging that yeah some of us are are 
restricted because we're still trying to uphold values and ideals of people mm-hmm. who are not us, right? And who, you know, right. are, are trying to appease people who may not necessarily have been the people we need to be appeasing. Um, exactly. And so I think that, I think that's so important and a big, like a big thing, I think, even when we talk about how sex ed can be healing in the future, I'm always a proponent of generational learning and like recognizing mm-hmm. if you're teaching the young person, if you're teaching the mid, uh, the young adult, if you can do that in community even better, if you can have it where they're bringing the auntie and they're bringing the, you know, grandma and they're bringing the foster parents and they're bringing the stepdad, like bring it to the table. Let's all talk about it together. I think that's a amazing way to do sex ed, period. Um, so. And I wish I could start earlier because like my mom supports my work now probably more than I felt like she did in the past or maybe, mm-hmm. I don't know, like some shift happened um, and especially like with NC SexCon, once I started that, like my mama was at every conference, I think, except maybe one. Yeah. But like now she's wearing my t-shirts. I'm like, Ma, you, you're yes. Oh, and you, I realize, oh, yes, I am. <laughs> and, I realize all mamas like, need to know is... Are you gonna be all right? Are you gonna make money? Are you gonna be okay? All right, I'm, I'm riding. Uh-huh. Whatever it is you're doing, I'm riding okay. with you. Let's go. Let's go. I just need to know. Yeah. She's like, well, you know, you you sent so and so that package with those toys. Like, um, can you send her another one? Like, I'm like, now, now you got me mailing sex toys. Okay, fine. Man. Yes, I love that. But that's sex toys, condoms, and lube. Yes, I love that. I love that. And shouts out to Black moms because I think. Um, and all caregivers, right? I think the, the often I think we take on what I think is a very Eurocentric na- narrative that you are in when it comes to sex, you're in this by yourself. And I just don't think that is the case in our community. Like I do, I, obviously I do think violence is real. I do think harm mm. and phobia is real. And I also think that a lot of that phobia is less about being uncomfortable with what you're doing and more uncom- and more discomfort around what does that mean for your safety? What does that mean for your right. your security? Like I I am uncomfortable because I'm you're my baby or you're my family member and I care about you and I and maybe I have a warped perception of what care means and so my warped perception warped perception is that um you know, you're only going to be safe if you are, you know, practicing heterosexuality in a cisgender Christian blah 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 relationship. Yeah. Um but it's still coming from this place of con- that connection that you said, wanting to be connected and just needing to learn that that ain't it, chief. That that connection, <laughs> that ain't how you achieve connection, right? So right, I right. appreciate you bringing all of that up. Um, so you brought up COVID, which was an excellent segue into um, the questions I wanted to ask you about the vaccine. Uh, well. I think we can start talking about sex and COVID generally, right? And thinking about mm-hmm. COVID's effects on sexuality and maybe some of the sexual choices you feel like uh, people are making or th- they may need to think about during this time. Um, but then also mm-hmm. thinking about the vaccine and specifically the vaccine and black folks and your thoughts around uh, maybe the folks who are like, I ain't taking that. <laughs> and and maybe even some of the pressure that folks want to put on black folks to be like, well, why aren't you taking it? We want to make sure you take it first. Right, right, right. right? right. So any of that you want to jump into? Well, I think the first thing that came to my mind, um, and I did it, I was like, ooh, I am guilty um, with COVID, <laughs> is like, you know, the stigma around it. Like, so when you think about because of that whole prevention lens around HIV and sexually transmitted infections, like, well, someone called and was like, oh, well, 
um, so and such tested positive for COVID. <gasps> How'd they get it? Like, mm-hmm. how did they get it was the first thing. Not like, why is that any of my concern or business? Mm-hmm. And we, I know how it's transmitted. Mm-hmm. And there are a million things that could have happened to that individual, none of which are my business. Right. So it was that whole thing because I think that's how we feel when someone says they have an STI, if someone says they have HIV, or become pregnant. Like, mm-hmm. well, they know how they got pregnant, but they want to know, who was what was you doing? That impregnated. Why right. was you doing exactly. what you're supposed to be doing? Right? Because the assumption is exactly. you, if you have these things, you were not doing what you were supposed to be doing, whatever to that do. is. Yeah. But I think it also shines a light on, I knew this as a disease intervention specialist, and I knew that you, you know, you had to be really good at that job in order to get information, but that folks are still, because of that stigma I just laid out, they're very protective about what they say. So in contact tracing with HIV and, you know, in North Carolina we do syphilis, you know, you're asking people who might they expose or who might have exposed them through sex, needle sharing, or, Mm -hmm. you know, any of the other behaviors. With COVID, you're doing the same thing as more so, so where have you been and who have you been around? Mm -hmm. Because it's more so about letting them know that they've been exposed just in case they have it. And I know personally uh, some black folks who are just like, nah, nah, I'm good. And when the contact tracers um, reached out to them, they withheld some names, which is very much similar to what would happen in the other case. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I wondered why. Mm-hmm. You know, what was it still rooted in that stigma of like, I did something wrong or I'm mad, at, I'm going to be mad or endangered because. I might have exposed you, but you didn't do it intentionally. It's still yeah. like there's not that intention behind it. Yeah. So I think there's still a lot of stigma about disclosing your whereabouts and your whoabouts because yeah. you, you know, you're putting yourself out there even though you have in some ways a protection yeah. to 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 release these names and information. Yeah. And then the other piece of it is that with the vaccine. You know, I'm gonna be honest. I'm a, I'm a, I work for Health and Human Services right now. I work at a university. I have my own issues that I'm working through about the vaccine. I know that science works. I believe in science. I also know that people put a lot of black folks in particular, like we would take a Tylenol any five minutes. Look. Something was hurting. Somebody would give you a Tylenol. You, you better take this ginger ale and sit down. Right, like <laughs> anything. But when, you know, you think about the long-term effects, you never know what's going to happen. It's almost like the um, pros outweigh the unknown cons Mm -hmm. at at the moment in time. Like, you do wish you had more information about the vaccine, but you don't. Yeah. Just like we didn't know, we didn't have the information about Tylenol. I think it was Tylenol, I feel like, that was causing, like, um, some heightened risk of cancer Mm. or some uh, even with liver back in the day. But people still were like, no, it's Tylenol. I trust Tylenol. I really don't know everything that's in Tylenol. I heard Chris Rock say that as the example, so I don't want to want people to think that he stole it from me. I stole it from him. <laughs> but um, you know, there is this idea of like I don't know what's in a lot of things that I put in my body, right? But I trust that it's safe, right? So I have shifted my thinking to be I do believe in science, and I have some reason to trust it, but I also have reason not to. Yeah. So. It's normal for me to have this fear, and I shouldn't have to convince you. If you don't want to take the vaccine, in this particular case, I feel like you shouldn't have to be made to take it. Yeah. You know, it's your choice. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that, because I think a lot of folks 
are probably, we haven't gotten to the height of that pressure, but I think we are going to as a society, once it's clear that we do have a vaccine that's like, oh no, this works and it works for this amount of time. Like there's going to be this pressure point for a lot of folks, but especially black folks of like, I don't know that I even want this. I don't even know that this is something that I wanna actively choose because I am feeling like I don't want to trust this. And right. this pressure of like, but you need to, and if you don't, there's something wrong with you. And you're, you know, you be, it's, it's going to be the focus on your stubbornness and not validating. I, I, I love that you said that your wavering is normal, that your vacillation is normal. And, and because I think having folks who be willing to normalize that and be able to say and validate, like, I get why you as a black person would not want this. And if you don't want it, I'm not going to guilt you. I'm not going to pressure you. I'm not going to take away your resources that you are already, you know, may already be compromised in your access to because you have this healthy uh, skepticism about this thing, given the history. You know, I, I also appreciate what you said about science and the fact that, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that we take that we do not be thinking about what's in it and be like, oh, yeah, you know, have you do you have that same amount of energy for the cheese puffs you was eating last last weekend? Like, do you have that same amount of energy for the maxi pads that you put on your body? Uh, because mm. it's a whole lot of stuff that we have normalized that it's OK for us to use that got just as much, right. if not more stuff in it that can be harmful to the body. And so I think there's also that piece that can be brought into the table to say, don't make it where you are somehow lifting yourself up as as a form of self-righteousness righteousness to be like, no, exactly. I'm above the COVID vaccine. Like, don't do that either. <laughs> um, so I, I appreciate you bringing up that complexity. Um, I do want to go back to what you said, what you were saying, though, about contact tracing and, and the ways that people withhold names, because in this moment, a light bulb went off for me about the intersection between um, sexual, like, well, I was thinking about sexual behavior and COVID, mm-hmm. con, you know, contracting COVID, um, but thinking about the parallel process that I don't think I had thought about between, you know, the reluctance to give up certain names for STI tracing and the reluctance to give up COVID names, right? Like thinking about, mm-hmm. oh yeah, if I'm still experiencing the stigma around partners and who I can have sex with and who would be deemed, uh, non-respectable, I may still feel like, oh, I don't know that I can tell you that I was with these folks and these folks in this experience, because then questions about my sexuality or or my sexual behavior are going to come to the Mm -hmm. fore and it's going to be less about my health and more about the moral judgment of what I've been doing. On top of, like, I think about that too, um, uh, uh, Harakuti, who's a professor out of, a black sexuality professor out of Goddard College, at the very height of the, the... quarantine he talked about the fact that you know we are as humans but i think especially black folks we're naturally social people right like we love to be in community we love to hang out with each other so this idea of quarantine because that's the best thing struggle right like and i think in theory yes we want to keep each other safe we want to be safe and also like that can only go so long particularly in a country where it's so clear that there's no plan like we don't know how long we're gonna keep y'all here by yourselves but you need to be by yourselves that it follows especially for black folks that like listen we got we got we got about five months before the july coming up and my birthday coming up and you know and and so i think at the same time i get 
those who have been quote unquote following directions, I get their anger about this. I get their frustration mm -hmm. about this. I also understand the people who are like, listen, I cannot let this, this inept, you know, let this inept process run my life because exactly. my lively, especially if you live alone, especially if you're someone who's like, I don't have built in family that I can just plug into. I'm living here by myself. I have desires. I have skin hunger. I have things that I want to have yeah. fulfilled. Um, I, I see how that pushes people to be like, you know what? F these rules. What, you, and so y'all well, figure out something I, else. I had a conversation with someone who, beyond just like the, the sexual and social desires, it is survival. Um, we were talking about an individual who actually tested positive, um, wasn't like severely ill, but was ill, but had no one. No one mm. to help, no one to um, bring food. Yeah, that's and a good so point. And so this person was going out getting food yeah and, and getting stuff that they needed and so on one end you're like why would you do that but it's like you didn't have anybody yeah like they didn't have I was anybody like, eat. that they could rely on yeah that's right. a great point that's a great point because i think too we all i think it's easy in any case to make assumptions about mm -hmm. why like how easy we think it is for someone to do something that that seems simple right just stay in the house why can't you just stay in the house but it's like if i live alone <laughs> and i am sick and I need to eat, what am I doing? Am I just gonna sit here and starve? Or it, like, how right. does that work exactly? Are, are you going to bring me food? Are you going to call right. me? Are you going to Zoom with me and keep me company and keep me from going delirious at, uh, about the fear that I have about what's going on in my body, right? So I think all of these things, and I appreciate as someone specifically in public health that you are exploring the nuances and helping people see the nuances because I think sometimes that can get lost in right. the, uh, what you said earlier, I think it was sterilized, the way that sex ed even gets taught from these sterilized mm -hmm. ideas of, if you just do this, that, and that, and it's like, that ain't even in, con in context, that don't even make sense. <laughs> it that ain't even how that would work in context, but you're saying just do this. <sighs> Right. Right. <laughs> so. And repeating it and not even believing it yourself. Right. right? You look like, <laughs> I'm going to just do it because it's my job, but you know, y'all do yep. what y'all go to. So real quickly, Tanya, you mentioned NC SexCon and uh, that work that you do. Talk a little bit more about what was your, for, for the regular people too, like, because I know NC SexCon is mostly for practitioners, but regular folks can come to it as well. How does that work? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I came to it because, like, I have had several jobs. I'll just put that out there. <laughs> but I've worked in, like, the different pockets of sexuality and public health. And just like I was saying, we're like, why aren't the folks who work in, you know, with men who have sex with men on HIV prevention at this sexuality conference, because they could probably, you know, pour into some folks and learn some things themselves. And I just realized that everything was so segmented, in particular in our state, like there would be an adolescent pregnancy prevention conference and a uh, intimate partner violence conference or, you know, um, maybe HIV prevent, like everything was like beep, 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 but there was never like this crossover. And some of the national conferences were a little expensive. Listen. Um, and you had to travel to go to. So I was like, you know what, what if I bring a, well, also the, um, sorry, my partner is, um, Okay. Is that terrible? It's okay. I don't know what to do. We'll cut it. <laughs> keep talking. We'll cut it all out. So. Okay. But, um, the whole thing around um, voices not being, you know, you submit a proposal, you get denied, or you you don't, you know, no one reached out to you because they know you're doing fabulous work, but they didn't even ask you to be a part of their conference. They got somebody from 
Wherverville mm -hmm. all the way mm -hmm. to talk about some of the very thing you're doing right here in the state. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to be able to bring some of those national voices to North Carolina, uplift some of the local voices who are doing great work, and also encourage people to explore across disciplines. Mm -hmm. And so that's how it came uh, to be. But even in that, you know, some of the work in the community projects, community participatory, is it, I always say it, community-based participatory research. Mm. Um, we had, you know, folks who are living in different communities, like in Durham, North Carolina, we were like, well, we're trying to help you be peer educators. You need to come to this conference too. You know, if you're a student or whoever, it was like, if you had an interest in anything sexual related, you could come to this conference. Mm -hmm. And we didn't want price, you know, or money to be an object, so we offered scholarships. We partnered with as many people as we could to support those scholarships and um, raise enough money to try to do that because we wanted everybody to have an overall experience. Um, and I think it worked. Like, I feel like the, I don't know which conferences are best because I feel like they were all good in all different ways. Mm -hmm. You know, like from the connections that people made from the keynote speakers and the conversations that people had. I think last, well, it wasn't last year, 2019 was when we were like, okay, let's broaden the scope a little bit more because, you know, it is North Carolina. Mm -hmm. We didn't know how people were going to take some of the kink conversations and talking about sex toys like fully open but goody did a a workshop called the toy story yes. and it was jam-packed like okay awesome i see y'all yes, yes. you know shout so, out to goody yeah. howard who's been on the show uh <laughs> at this point so <laughs> yes love that love that and and i love that again what you said about connection is this idea of community can be here the educators can be here and the regular regular folks who just want to learn and be in space can be here and i think that's so important because it pushes back against what i feel like has been the tradition in our profession of uh mm -hmm. kind of being elitist and be like oh well this is just for you know folks who have this particular training and have this particular background and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, no, we all get in here and we all going to talk and we all going to learn because anyone has the capacity to learn. Um, so let me ask you, so you, you talked about kind of what you felt like black folks, we, we need to work on in terms of not yucking other people's yum. Let's say there's someone who's listening. Who's like, okay, Tanya, I feel you. Like I get that. And I don't know how to do that. Like, what? where do I begin? What do I, like, how do I do that? Or I get it, but, you know, all my friends or my family, they just don't get that. And I'm not sure how to facilitate or push those discussions. What advice would you have for them? I think you get to... Um, it's almost like say a word, like offer up, you know what, maybe there are other things, you know, I find myself saying, well, you know, some people like that and it becomes a debate and I'm like, you know, it is not here. I, I don't have the energy to argue because you're going to think what you think. And then other people want to know a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's so, and it's not necessarily about you exposing anything about yourself and your likes. It's just helping people, um, center the conversation around being open you know, yeah. and, and not open to like, I have to do it, but just open to realize people do a whole lot of things that you don't do yeah, and really like it. And that's and okay. Something, <laughs> and it's okay. That, that's what I, I love about it is that I think you can open up the door by just saying, well, you know, some people do this and some people do that. Um, I got, I try Dr. G not to get into these Facebook battles but like depending on my emotional state of the day, I might go in mm -hmm. and I just remember someone I want to say it was about Niecy Nash and, um, you know, getting married. Mm -hmm. And someone was um, saying 
something very heteronormative in, in my mind. I think homophobic, um, but you've heard it like someone saying strictly, you know what, mm-hmm. right? And I was like, well, you know, sexuality is fluid, and I'm pretty sure, never was saying that this person um, about their identity, but I was like, sexuality is fluid, and the person that you were at 20 is not who I think you are at this day. Like, yeah. all the things about our sexuality changes. No, they don't. And I was just like, Back and forth. And I was like, like I said. And then I realized, I was like, Tanya, why? Why are you putting this energy? I knew I was misdirecting some anger that I had about something else. But also, I was just like, I put a lot of energy into having this conversation with this individual. And clearly, their mindset Well, I think it's beautiful, though, that you at least said what needed to be said, right? The the reality that sexuality is fluid. But also that Nisi Nash could have very well been queer her whole life like she's likely been queer her whole life and she just happens to be coming out in this particular relationship like even if someone who's bi someone who's queer they don't necessarily have to be poly they don't necessarily have to have a man and a woman at the same time to for you to understand their bisexuality they could have in fact have just been bisexual their whole lives had public relationships with men and now are showing hey now i'm in this public relationship with a woman all of that can be true and none of it is your business (laughs) right and that's why I was like, why are we arguing? You, what's wrong with you? Yeah, yeah. It, well, and I think too, um, I guess this was part of the question I could have asked you as well is I think about folks who are like, well, what, what will the children say? And what will the children think? You know, we we, we have to set an example for children. And I think um, it, it's really important for me that we continue to push these conversations because the reality, one, I think this generation is starting to teach us more to be like, I don't care what you think. This is what we know to be true, like about how all of this works, but also just accepting like the goal, I think of raising healthy, healthy sexual, healthy sexual beings as children. And and, um, Melissa Carnegie and I had this conversation during the episode I had with her that a lot of it is less about, I'm going to give you this information and I'm going to train you to think about this in this way uh, versus increasing their capacity to think and decide for themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think yep. one of the things we talked about was as black adults, as black elders, we sometimes get into this rigid of rigid thinking of, well, my child, this is my child. So they need to think about things the way I think about it. They need to do what I say do. And the reality is that one, did that work for us? Like how many things right. have we been taught that we grew up and we're like, mm, actually I do, I do differently. Um, <laughs> right. And, or like, yes. I knew that was some bull when I first heard it. Um, and then or, I just didn't have a, you know, guts. I didn't want to go into it. Right. Right. And then two of the things that we may have taken on, how, how is that serving us? Right. So the idea, for example, that, you know, I'm not going to get too deep in this, but even just something as simple as you only have sex until you get married. You don't have sex until you get married. It's like, okay, but I haven't been proposed to and I'm 42. So how does that work? What am I supposed to How does that work? Exactly. Right. Um, You know, so having that, I think is really important that the importance of teaching young people less about the content and more about how to approach their sexuality from a place of developing mastery and not do this because I said so. 
and and that be that be it. So I I think that and how liberating is that for young people? Like exactly. when I look at them, when I do engage with some of my students in class, I'm like, man, I wish I'd been half the person you are now back then. Come on, I mean, really, like how much freer? Well, like I think of of uh, various parts of my identity that I only lead into within the past maybe even like five, six, seven years where it was like, right. damn it, where was this in my 20s? Like, where was yep. this? You know, so I, I definitely agree with you. Um, so I have one formal question before I get into my rapid fire questions. If you would, just I'd like you to share what you feel like it means for you to be a black sexuality educator in this moment in time, thinking about where we are as a country, where we are as a society, uh, what you feel like your either your purpose or your role is or your significance. Wow. Um, ooh, I wasn't ready for that one. But I, I, I think like the, the word that comes to mind is like warrior activist. Mm. I feel like in this moment in time, like it's my responsibility and opportunity to have deep conversations about sexuality, to keep teaching, but teaching from a context of historical perspective. A lot of people are like, well, I don't understand why this law is like that or why are people like that? And it's kind of like, well, let's just go back. Right. Let's look at some of the laws, the policies. Let's look at um, some of the ways in which uh, people's good intentions cause so much harm and we're still undoing it mm -hmm. today mm -hmm. and that it still shows up today. I, I feel like, yeah, it's that colliding of understanding equity um, from that public health perspective, when you said like public health, um, well, racism is a public health crisis. I feel like um, racism is a sexuality crisis mm -hmm. as well. Like it's all entangled together. And so my role seems now to be like a warrior activist. Like I need to continue teaching, but I need to use an activist lens to make people understand why it's important yeah. to teach yeah. what and how I'm teaching it. And that I'm the teacher. Yes. That it's it's important for me to remain in the education space as a black woman. Yes. I love that. I love that so much. So, so, so powerful. Thank you so much for your presence. Um, all right. You ready for my rapid fire questions? Let me, let me take a sip. <laughs> okay. Literally sipping tea. Okay. okay. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, so these are just five uh, sentence stems that I have that are just rapid fire, and you answer with the first thing that comes to your mind, okay? Okay. All right. Sexiness is? Bodies. Amen. I feel like that's a very Taurus thing for you to say. <laughs> for those listening, Tanya's a Taurus, and, and we're friends. That's how I know that. So it's funny. I love it. The sexiest thing about blackness and or black people is? Their spirit. I love that. Yeah. My go-to for feeling sexy is? Currently, and I'll show you, I don't know why, lip gloss. Yes! It be like, popping, right? Have all these, this should be office supplies, but it's literally lip glosses on my desk. I love that. I love that. It's like, especially now with all these zooms, it's like, listen, let me get myself together. Right. I'm not gonna lie, I, I am a little crusty this morning. I, as I sat down, but we were already running late. But as I sat down, I was like, damn it, where is my lip balm? <laughs> it's important. Yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Sexual freedom for Black folk is achieved when. 
when we are able to live our free whole selves. Yes. Amen. Amen. Finally, when I'm done being on this podcast, I will take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Amen. I affirm. <laughs> I affirm and validate I didn't want that. To tell it. I, I was looking dead at my bed and I'm like, I'm totally taking it. Yes. I love that. I love that. Thank you so, so much, Tanya, for being on this show with me. I am so grateful that you agreed to come. And I feel like this conversation was amazing. Uh, there's so many jewels in this. I cannot imagine that folks leave this conversation without just a bunch of different things to think about and percolate with and move on. There will be uh, in the show notes, y'all can find that there will be references to everything that Tanya raised, um, all uh, autobiographies and different links that you can explore to get into the thoughts that uh, she brought up. Tanya, really quickly, uh, can you share where folks can find you on social media? Absolutely. On Instagram, hopefully they won't close our account, Look. but it is the Tanya Bass, T-H-E-T-A-N-Y-A-M-B-A-S-S. And my website is just www.tanyambass.com. Love it. Love it. Love it. Thank you again for being here, Thanks Tanya. Thanks for having me. <laughs> You've been listening to TSOB with Dr. G, produced by Dr. Tracy Q. Gilbert of Tembi and Aya. To keep up with all things TSOB, Follow us on social media at TSOB The Podcast, which you can find on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. For past episodes of the show, visit TSOBpodcast.com or subscribe to the show either on YouTube or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Now, don't forget that you've got homework for this episode. To find the downloadable worksheet for this or any other episode of the show, head on over again to tsobpodcast.com where you'll find it and any other important information from the show notes. And finally, do you have any questions or thoughts to share? Sound off by email at mailbox at tsobpodcast.com. Again, this was TSOB, the sex ed of black folk. Thank you for listening. Talk again soon.